Please be seated. Last week we began this great book of Titus and Paul is writing to Titus, this uh, younger man in the faith who is responsible for setting things in order uh, on the island of Crete, which is off, as we looked at last week, it's off the coast of Greece, the southern coast of, of Greece there. And uh, he is trying to instruct Titus on how to set things up well, to, to have things done decently and in order, to set things in order, as he says, and, and to appoint leaders, as we saw last week, and to just uh, be the leader that God had called him to be. As I mentioned last week, he doesn't encourage Titus in some of the things that he encouraged Timothy in. You remember in Timothy, he encouraged him to uh, not be concerned about the fear of man. He said, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And, and he gave him very specific things on how the church should function in 1 Timothy. And as we saw also in 2 Timothy, uh, we're supposed to oversee things, those of us that are leaders in the body of Christ, uh, with our integrity and our character leading the way. And the way to be able to handle difficulty and hardship for any of us, for sure, but also for leaders, is to have godly character. And so we saw that in 2 Timothy. But now in Titus, he's dealing a little bit more with how the church should function, and, and he's setting things in order and so forth. But it's still important for Titus to know that his own personal integrity is critical, and he's going to talk about that. But also we're going to see, as we look at these, this chapter here, that uh, he's, Titus is supposed to help those that are in the church know how to live out the Christian life. You know, it's not supposed to be just a theoretical faith. God's called us to uh, live out the Christian life in a practical way with practical holiness so that when people think about Christianity, when they think about God, when they think about Jesus and all that Christianity represents, they have a, a, a personal reference point in us. And we're told in many, uh, you know, cards and, and uh, th- websites and, and things that people write that sometimes we're the only Bible that people will ever read. And that's true. And I like the saying, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's a great quote. Uh, but obviously, our lives need to represent the truth. When people look at our lives, they need to say, that person knows God. He's he or she is different than me, and I can see that there's something different in their life. Well, that doesn't just happen by accident. That happens by us yielding our lives to God. That happens by us saying, I want to be like you, Lord, and I want you to make me into the person that you've called me to be. And that's what his will is for our lives, is for us to be further conformed into the image of Christ. Now, as we saw last week, the situation in, in Crete is a little uh, dire in a sense. I mean, the culture is just horrific. Look back with me at chapter 1 real quick before we get into our verses. And I want, us to, I want to remind ourselves, those of us that were here and, and those of us that weren't can see this. Uh, back in chapter 1, look at verse 12 and 13 where Paul writes by the Spirit, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That gives us a little glimpse into the culture of Crete. And it, and it tells us what Titus is in the middle of. Here he is. He's on this island. He's been dispatched by Paul, obviously, ultimately by the Spirit, to set things in order to appoint leaders on this island. There and, and it's a very debauched culture. Sometimes we can think that our culture is the worst, most ungodly culture that has ever existed. But cultures have been ungodly throughout a man's history. And, and it ebbs and flows. But here is this culture that, Tim, that Titus is in the middle of. And so Paul saying to him, you need to recognize leaders that have godly character. We saw that last week. But then now, this week, he's going to talk a little bit about how specific people should function in a practical way. Because this culture was so bad and so dysfunctional and so sinful, I mean, look at what he says. I mean, lazy gluttons, liars, evil beasts. And Paul says it's true. 
It's not only true that the prophet that lived 600 BC said that about those people, but Paul is saying that that is a general characteristic of that culture. And as we looked at last week, he doesn't lower the bar for, for the characteristics of, of leaders that Timothy should look for. He says, no, God, it can produce that in any culture at any time because of how proficient his gospel is and how he thoroughly changes a life by the Holy Spirit. So this week he's going to say, I want you to deal and help these certain people have practical holiness in their life. I want you to instruct these certain groups. He's going to talk about five groups of people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. And also he's going to exhort Titus about his own personal walk. And so he's going to deal with these specific groups to help them have a frame of reference to help them understand how, how God expects me to live in this, this uh, how the, God expected them to live in that horrific culture. And it's true for us today. Again, God puts a high premium on personal holiness. And he doesn't say because the culture is so bad, then Christians, you know, therefore, uh, you know, it's harder for them so they don't have to live a holy life. Actually, he says, no, you need to always live the life that I've called you to live. And the more wicked the culture is, the lighter or the brighter that your light will shine. And, and that's true. When things are super dark, well, you put the tiniest little light and it, it illuminates so much. And, and so he's going to get on these very specific issues, and they needed, to, they needed to hear it. So he begins in verse 1. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So he says, You, Titus, you do this. And he tells them to speak the things which are in line with sound doctrine. So all the things he's going to tell Titus to tell these groups of people are commensurate with sound doctrine. You know, we think of doctrine sometimes as just the Trinity, you know, the, the deity of Christ and the doctrine of justification and sanctification and all these theological terms and truths. And we forget that God's very practical. I mean, if, if our holiness isn't trickling down into who we are and who we live uh, or how we live in a, in a practical sense, then what good is it? That's why he just got done speaking to, to, to Titus to watch for these characteristics within these potential leaders. And it carried all the way through to their families, to their marriages, to how they conducted their lives, how they were greedy or not greedy. I mean, all these character traits. And so God's very much concerned about it. And he says that's what proper doctrine is in part, is how we live our lives. Again, we're the theology lesson of the world. We represent the things about the things pertaining to God based on how we live. They will listen to all kinds of sermons and, and, and be impacted, of course. But as they see a, a different kind of life lived out, that's what changes things. How many of us saw a good representation of a godly life before we came to know Christ. I can say that I did. Saw some, my sisters, my sister Laura, my sister Lisa got saved 10 years before I did and prayed every day, God save that kid, please save that knucklehead. And, and, and they prayed for 10 long years. But what made the impact on me the most, in the most significant or profound way was not what they said to me. Actually, they said probably pretty little compared to what I would probably say. <laughs> but they just let their light shine through into my life, and they modeled what a godly person looks like, and it made a huge difference. So he says, speak these things. Now, in verse 15, the last verse of the, of the chapter, he's going to say it again, to speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. So it, he kind of bookends. I know that he didn't inspire these chapter divisions, but what he said to him was, is, is kind of sandwiched in between uh, these two great things for him to speak these things. It wasn't just enough for Titus to, to walk these things or live these things or be an example, as important as that is. He actually had to open his mouth. And that's why I talked about the gift of leading. It's very important within a leader because they have to have the boldness to say what people need to hear, even if they may not want to hear it in a spirit-directed, loving way. So air produces harm in our lives. Sound doctrine produces godliness. And so he says, you, Titus, do this. Now, in verse 2, he begins with the older women, the first group there. He says that the older or he begins with older men, rather, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in 
patience. So he says, I'm going to start with the older men. And now in that time, as we looked at when we studied Timothy, an older man was, was, was considered, you know, in his 40s. And I don't like to hear that, uh, but he, Timothy was in, his, was in his 30s. He was between 30 and 38 when, when Paul wrote that letter to him, the first letter to him. So in, when you're in your 40s, you were considered older. And I know that, that there's quite a bit older beyond uh, that age, but uh, this, this description here is for pretty much anyone from 40s up in that culture. But obviously in, in every culture is different. But he says for them to be sober, it means to be thinking clearly. And he's going to talk about being sober-minded and having self-control related to the younger men. But he also says the older men need to be sober, need to be thinking clearly. You know, older men have responsibilities usually. People are looking at their lives, coming to conclusions about God and what God has done in their lives based on their, their, the way they live their life. And if they're living their life in a way where they're not sober-minded and they're, they're intoxicated by something else, and it could be substances, you know, like drugs, or it could be anything that is uh, contrary to God's word. But we're supposed to live soberly and reverent and respectful related to God and the things of God and respectful of people. So he says to be reverent there and to be temperate, which means to have self-control, to, to not be under the control of all these different circumstances and things that come into our lives at times, but to be temperate, to be sound in faith, to have a healthy trust in God, a healthy trust in the things of the Lord, that his word is true, and a person that models stepping out and trusting what God has already told him to do and doing it by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, to be sound, to not be like James describes in James chapter 1, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or, or by, by just the instability of not asking God in faith and trusting that he will honor his word. He says, tell those older men to be engaged in that. In love. Interesting, God has to tell us to love, isn't it? You would think that we would recognize that that is a good thing and that we should all be engaged in it at any given time. But God tells us to love. He also produces love in our lives. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love. But he also tells us to love. And in both in English and in Greek, there's a noun and there's a verb form of love. So he says these older men need to grow in love. This place of carnality, this island of Crete, you know, when you are carnal, you're self-consumed. You're selfish. You're not thinking of others. And then he says in patience, these men need to be exhorted to be uh, patient. Now we're called to be patient, but we're also told that it's also a fruit of the Spirit. So as we abide in God, as we... Uh, grow in him as we yield our lives to him he produces the fruit of the spirit we don't just roll up our sleeves in the power of our strength and do these things in our own power he says i provide you with the power to do this i provide you with the strength to do it so evidently these older men as in any culture but maybe more predominantly in crete there that men weren't sober, they were intoxicated, they weren't reverent, they weren't temperate, sound in the faith, in love, having love and patience. So if this culture was lazy gluttons and evil beasts and always lying, that's all about self, uh, uh, selfish ambition, all about serving themselves. And so he says, Titus, you lead, you pastor up, so to speak, and you, you, you exhort them and tell them this is the standard. I'm so thankful for men of God and people that are used by God to tell us the truth, the things that we need to hear. And it could happen through reading books or being on websites or watching certain programs. I mean, you have to be careful of Christian television. There's, there's a lot of craziness there. Um, not all, of course. We have to be careful. But God says that he is guiding us somewhere and he's leading our lives somewhere and it looks, it's supposed to look like Christ. So then he gets to the older women in verse 3. He says, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So how does Titus come and say to any woman that you're an older woman? I don't know. That's, that, that, that escapes me how he does that. But I guess he's relying on the culture 
then the, they already know that they're considered older women and you know I'm sure they didn't wear name tags I'm the older woman I'm the younger women and uh, all of that but what man wants to tell a woman she's one of the older women I mean uh, I, I have a, I had great compassion for that but this is kind of picturing a woman that is two things is not as distracted potentially maybe they're a widow or they are their kids are out of the home so they're not distracted, and they also have wisdom. The, the presupposition here is that women, these older women, have something to pass on. They've gone through life a little bit. And you know, you know how life teaches you some things. When you're younger, you think you know everything. And then when you're older, you realize, my parents weren't as stupid as I thought they were. They're pretty wise, and you respect them. Sometimes that comes sooner rather than later. Sometimes it comes a lot later than sooner. But the sooner we learn that, that older people, and especially in our culture, they are not valued like they need to be. You go to a, a, an Asian culture, as an example. Older people are valued a lot more than they are in our culture. And that is being eroded and going downhill faster and faster. And so what Paul is saying by the Spirit to Titus is these older women that are less distracted because of their circumstances and they have a lot of wisdom. There are these younger women that are lacking that wisdom who, aren't, who are distracted in many ways by having children or they're engaged in a lot of other things that youth uh, has you in the middle of. And he wants these older women to take time to sow into these, these uh, younger women. He's going to get to very specific things, but before that, he works on their character. Again, a theme throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus is godly character. So he's focusing in on their character. And sometimes when you have extra time, you have a little bit of more of an opportunity to get in trouble. <laughs> I loved the summers when I was a kid. I had so much time on my hands, and I never got bored. I mean, ever. I mean, they could, we could, I could have had a summer vacation for a year or two. I would have been fine. I'd go out early in the morning, take my bike with my friends. We'd ride all the way across Modesto to the other side of Modesto. And that was a long way even then. And we would get in all kinds of trouble. I mean, we'd just find things to do that, that were getting us into trouble. And, and it, it's true, the old saying that, that uh, idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And so when we are, have a lot of time in our hands... That's why one of the reasons why God has us being busy about his business. Sometimes when we're in the middle of some kind of uh, ministry or we're serving people in our family or we're doing some difficult thing, we sometimes can think that it's only for the benefit of that person that God has us doing those things. Not, not all the time. Many times he has us in the middle of some ministry or some sacrificial thing that we're doing for our benefit because he knows that we need to be busy about his business or we would get into trouble. And so he's saying to these older women, you have some extra time, but that extra time needs to be used to have godly character and to have that godly character be passed down to the younger women. So he says they need to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. In other words, not spend your extra time slandering or speaking evil. What's interesting about that word uh, um, slanderers there, uh, it's the word for devil in the Greek. It's diabolos. And so it's literally saying that uh, not for them to be devil-tongued. Ouch. Just think of them hearing that for the first time. Don't be devil-tongued, you know, because the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. There's no greater slanderer than the enemy, Satan. He slanders all day long. So he doesn't want us to be slandering and speaking evil of people. And so he says, these older women, Titus, you need to tell them. Stop it. Don't, do, don't be engaged in that. That's not, your, that's not their place to be talking about everybody. And, and not that men don't have to struggle with that, but uh, the, he's focusing on the older women here. Not given to much wine, so they need to be under the control of the Spirit, not anything else, and not given over to that. Teachers of good things. And so uh, he's, he's going to tell them to teach the younger women to, to be good. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But he says to be teachers. See, they have something to share. They have something to teach. If you're older here, and I'm not going to define you, who you are, who could, who's older and who's not. Again, no man wants to get involved in that uh, affair. But if you think you're older and you think that it applies to you, uh, be busy about the Lord's business and recognize that God has poured what he's poured into you for a reason, not just for your own benefit. 
All, everything he does in our lives is not supremely for our benefit. It's for his benefit, to bring glory to him and to bless other people. So you, God wants you to pass on to the younger women what it is that they need to be engaged in. And so he, uh, he tells them that, and he tells them in verse 4 what specific things to, he wants the older women to share. That they admonish the younger women to love their husbands and, and to love their children. And that's interesting because the word love there is not agape. The word there is phileo, and that's a brotherly love or a, an affectionate fondness or a, you know, the word Philadelphia, the name Philadelphia is city of brotherly love. Delphia is city and phileo is love. It's not agape love, but sometimes we can think if it's not agape love, then somehow it's not a desirable love to have um, and, or it's an inferior love. And in a sense, it's inferior because it's not as sacrificial, but it's still very very valuable. Jesus said at one point related to the father. He said the father loves the son. And in that particular scripture, he uses phileo. There's other ones where God says he loves the son that it's agape. But there are other ones where he says phileo. And so it's a fondness. It's, 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 it's a, uh, a, an, a more of an emotional or, or a, uh, a fondness type love that, that God's calling women to have for their husbands. You know, it's not, we can't say, well, you know, I agape you, uh, but I'm not going to phileo you. You know, I'm not going to have fondness towards you. No, that God wants you to be fond of your husband. God wants you to, and your wives, of course, too, but to be fond of your, of your husbands and to be fond of your children. And, you know, we think, well, isn't that obvious? But obviously in that culture, it wasn't. And the more carnal and the more debauched a culture is, the less priority uh, parents have for their, their spouses and for their children. And sometimes men or women can have the children and their, and their spouse so far down in their priority list, it's just an afterthought. Sometimes you wonder, why do they have kids? <laughs> you know, why do they even have kids if they're not willing to have them as a priority? So in this culture and in our culture, it's happening increasingly. Well, we don't put our spouses first. And so for our priorities, God is first. And then if we're married, our spouse is second in that way and and then our children after that and so we need to recognize that should be our priority and so uh you know the lord just comes right out and says it clearly we're supposed the women younger women are supposed to love their husbands and love their children it also says in verse five to be to teach them to be discreet discreet chaste homemakers good obedient to their own parents or husbands that the word of god may not be blasphemed so to be discreet that is to show self-control to not draw attention to yourself what if this culture did that what if we were just consumed with not drawing attention to ourselves and having everybody focus on us all the time we can do that with our clothing we can do that with how you know jewelry and God speaks other places in the New Testament for women to not focus on their outward appearance to the neglect of having their godliness be the predominant characteristic that comes forth from their lives and so he says to tell them, to tell these younger women to be uh, discreet and to have self-control. To be chaste, which means to be pure. So that's important. To be pure. What we allow into our lives, what we allow into our minds and our hearts and what we listen to, the people that we're around. Those things need to contribute towards purity. And I think younger women need to be reminded of that. That God has an expectation related to your purity. Those of you that are really younger women in here, the youth that are here with us today, God's concerned about your purity. He wants you to be pure for him. That's something that he has a calling on your life for. And he says homemakers, and I want to clarify that because that can, well, what does that mean? That means that a wife is never allowed to work ever outside the home? No, I don't see that. I, don't, I can't. Uh, have that line up with Proverbs 31. That woman in Proverbs 31 was being very financially productive within the home and outside the home. But this is the caveat. This is the qualification. Women are called to make that home a home and to have the, everything in order in that home. You know, men can't make houses homes. I mean, if you doubt that, men, remember what your apartment looked like before you were married. That wasn't a home. What was that? 
I asked myself, what was that? I mean, I had dishes lined up, stacked up. I mean, nothing was in order. Nothing was, was uh, where it should be. And it just wasn't a fun place to be for anybody. So women are called to make their houses a home. Because you can walk into a house. It doesn't mean it's a home. They're responsible for things going well in that home, related to managing that home and taking care of the things that they're responsible for. God's called you to do that and to be faithful in that. And I've seen women get so distracted with with other things. And it could be a a second job because we all know that homemakers, that's a job. I mean, sometimes you apply for an application or you you apply for something with an application. You put homemaker and someone's looking at it and they kind of look at you like, oh, too bad for you. You're just a homemaker. Are you kidding me? That's the hardest thing you could ever think about doing. I, I, I like the things on the internet where you see how much an hour a homemaker should really make. And it's just, it's never enough. And so it's your responsibility. So if God's called you to work outside the home, he'll never call you to work outside the home to the neglect of making your home what it needs to be as, as the woman uh, of, uh, in that home. So um, now obviously their roles can be switched at times and temporarily. And there's all kinds of flexible things that God can ask you to to, to do related to uh, incomes and, and, and responsibilities. And of course, men need to be a servant in the home and be willing to do anything and help out and all of those things that goes without question. But still, in, in a debauched culture, that gets less and less of priority for women. And so we need to recognize that the standard has been laid out from God's word. So he says, teach them what's good, to be good. Teach these younger women to be good. And that could be hard. To figure out what is good. And the culture is saying that certain things are good that that the Bible uh, forbids and says is bad and vice versa. It's very difficult for for women, young women, to know what is the standard. And And the standard is his word. That's the standard. That's how we define what is good. And so we, younger women, of course, everybody, but younger women need to be engaged in what is good, not what is uh, bad or in uh, ungodly. Uh, obedient to their own husbands. Now, especially in our culture, that is definitely frowned upon. That is look, that's looked at as being oppressive. And God invented marriage. He knows how it should function. And God has called, and we've gone over this in other passages. You can read it in Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 7. There's, there's many different passages in the scriptures related to the biblical roles in marriage. And he's called uh, the wife to, to be in, under the leadership of the husband. And we're told in other places that the head of Christ is God and the head of the husband is, is Christ and the head of the wife is the husband. So wives, your husband is your head. That's why you need to pray for him because we're come sometimes boneheads. <laughs> and, you know, I know I feel sorry for you sometimes having to submit to our leadership when we're not obeying God's word and we're not doing the things that we should do, but he's still calling you to, to be obedient to your husband. Now, we're also told in scripture, though, to balance that out before the husbands get too excited, that God's call, and especially if you're new to the Bible, this could be really shocking, uh, what we just covered, but be encouraged by this. God's called the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And if a man is doing that, he is the easiest man to submit to that you'd ever find in this world. Because he has your best interest in mind. And of course, each group thinks that they have the harder calling. And as a man, I think, how in the world am I supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church? But God can give us the capacity to do it. At least keep growing in that. And so, very important. Now, he says here that the end of verse 5, what the repercussions of not doing these things are, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. People are coming to conclusions about God's word and about God based on our lives. And so we have to recognize there are implications for how I live. And these younger women were supposed to be told that there are great implications to them not growing in personal holiness. Now, verse 6, he says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. That's it? Just one verse for the younger men? You younger men in here, especially the youth, think about this. There's a lot wrapped up in this verse. To be sober-minded means to be self-controlled, to think clearly about life. And you younger men in here, listen up. Don't be impressed with this world. You younger women too, but don't be impressed with this world. 
Take, take a good hard look at where this world's going. Look at, the, look at what all the behavior that's out there that's, that's uh, uh, looked at with, with uh, approval. Look where it leads. That's the important thing for you young people. Look where all the behavior leads. Look at the end. Look at destroyed lives. The, the sitcoms and the, and the shows on TV and the reality shows and all that, they glorify or they, they make sin look real appealing. But what they don't show you is where it ends. They don't show you the people addicted. They don't show the destroyed marriages. They don't show the destroyed finances. They don't show the, the pain and suffering that comes from a life disobedient to God. This world is going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. And so don't go that direction. Live a self-controlled life. Be sober-minded. Obey your parents. Have your time with, with the Lord. Be engaged in the things of the Lord. You know, when you're singing to the Lord, it's not just a religious exercise. He really is listening to what you say to him in your heart and in your mind and, and, and with your lips. He really is. And he's speaking to you in his word. So, young men, be exhorted today. And I'm doing it right now. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. You can do it by God's grace, and you must do it by God's grace. Now, Paul speaks now to Titus about his character in life. In verse 7, he says, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So all of this has to start with Titus. And that's why Paul has already told them to recognize leaders, overseers, that have good character. But if you don't have it yourself, <laughs> then who's going to follow you? And who's going to listen to you? So he says, you yourself, Titus, watch yourself. I'm not just wanting you to speak to these groups of people. I'm wanting you to watch your own life and your own doctrine. He told Timothy that as well. So he says, showing yourself to be a pattern. And that, that word pattern was used to describe when they would imprint something on a piece of leather or something, or, a, or they would cast a die. And, it, and, and so he says, I want you to be an example. I want when all these groups of people, when they're considering these practical holiness characteristics, I want them to be able to look at you and be able to see a godly example of that to follow after. And so he says all these things that, that Titus should be, to have integrity, to show reverence, to, to have incorruptibility, to not be uh, like the world and so forth. And he says, let your speech be that which cannot be condemned. So no one could point to you who's uh, wanting to speak evil of you and have a legitimate thing that you have said out of your mouth that is something that that's anybody could criticize. He says, let them be ashamed so that they have nothing to evil, uh, nothing evil to say uh, about you. Then he says, exhort bond servants to, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Now, this doesn't apply in the sense of slaves and, and masters like it did back then. Remember, in Rome, there were 60 million slaves. 60 million. You look in their history and look at these great aqueducts that they build and these famous Roman roads that went through all of the the empire, the Roman Empire. How do you think those things came into existence? By slaves. And so God's not for slavery, obviously, but he knows that those things are going to be taken care of later, generally speaking, in our world, and that he knows that these slaves and these masters, many of whom are in the same church, and we looked at that before. Yeah, you could have a slave that was a pastor, and then the, his master could be the person in the, in the church. That, that happened in, in that time. So how are they supposed to function? Because, see, Christianity works in any circumstance. In any uh, situation in which we may find ourselves, Christianity works. And so in, in that culture, with slaves and so forth, the masters were, were to be obeyed and to work hard for them. Because ultimately, God knew that they were working for him. And when we work for anybody, uh, we're working ultimately for God. So the application for us would be more of employers and employees. But he says some very specific things for us to, that we should not talk back to them, not have a bad attitude. We shouldn't pilfer, which means to steal. Not one paperclip. Not one pencil, not one pen. If it's ours, it's ours. If it's the company's, it's the company's. And God's called us to not 
pilfer and to steal and to take things that aren't ours. And so much in our culture has to do with time. Stealing from the company because we're online on our, on our uh, time when we're supposed to be doing something else and we're checking things online and so forth. We're stealing from them. We're taking uh, time from them because they, during those hours, they own us. They, they, they own our time. And so God says, this is how you can be different. In this culture where it's wicked and there's lazy gluttons and liars and evil beasts and all, you know, all, these, all these things that represent carnality, he says, I want you to be different. And one of those ways you can be different if you happen to find yourself in the situation of being a slave is to not steal, to not speak uh, uh, back and, and to show all good fidelity. And this is interesting, the end of verse 10, he says, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And what that means is, it means to decorate. When you adorn yourself, you kind of decorate yourself. And, and so how do I decorate myself uh, so that the doctrine of God is seen better? Well, it's like when you, do, when you decorate a Christmas tree. If you have a Christmas tree, you, that tree looks a lot, uh, it reveals itself to, to fulfill the purpose it was made to, to, to have uh, with when you decorate it and have lights on it or when uh, a person dresses up a certain way and, and is presented at like let's say a military graduation and they're in their uniform they're all adorned in all of the things that that uh, represents who they are what it does is it validates the 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 legitimacy of what they're engaged in like the military so for our example or for, the, for us related to the doctrine of God when we live obedient to God's word when we have practical holiness that looks different from this world, what we're saying to the world is that it's like we're decorating the Bible in a sense. We're adorning the doctrine of God, showing that it really does produce a beautiful life. That the, what the doctrine of God produces is a, is a beautiful trophy of God's grace and it's attractive and it's something that is appealing. Because anything that's adorned is more appealing. And so for this world to be salt and light in this world, to say that the, God's word is attractive and all these things, what really uh, sends that message uh, the clearest is when we are obeying God's word. And then they say, well, it really does produce a life that's beautiful. Jesus said wisdom is justified by our children. Those that live according to God's wisdom are demonstrated to be the beautiful things that they are. And it reflects back on God's wisdom. Now, notice he gets us to some specifics. Uh, I'll actually move, move on to one more other thing here as we move forward. When we live this kind of life, when we live the kind of godly life that God's calling us to, and we are adorning the doctrine of God by living an obedient life, it, it brings God glory. And when we don't do that, it's frustrating for us as Christians. And we can try to do it in the power of our own strength. And so what Paul's going to get into uh, is he's going to get into grace uh, in, in um, verse 11. He's going to get into grace. And so I love this verse and I love this passage. One of the, actually the first time I ever preached a sermon, I think it was in 93 in the youth group in the church I was at. Um, it was a topical message. One of the passages was Titus 2 here. I was just learning about grace. I was, it was transforming my life, still is, but it was, I was just learning. It was all new to me. And I just loved hearing how, what, you know, grace could do in my life. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. Paul mentions grace over 120 times in his writings. Peter mentions it 10 times. John mentions it seven times. But what John mentions uh, over 200 times is Jesus. And we're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus is full of grace and truth. It's a beautiful thing in chapter 1. And, and Paul later in Romans would say, when sin abounds, grace hyper abounds. And so the reason why I bring that up is because Paul is leading us somewhere in the rest of these verses, verse 11 through 15. He's going to talk about how grace brought us to salvation. He's going to talk about grace uh, bringing us through a godly or through this life in a godly way. And he's going to talk about grace giving us the expectation and, and, and confidence and desire to look for Jesus to come back. 
And then later, uh, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So it's grace from beginning to end. He, he showed us grace before we came to know him. He saved us by his grace. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness through his grace. He gives us a desire to see Jesus come back by his grace. And then for all eternity, we're going to be learning about the riches of his grace. This week I had little mini devotionals going on uh, on KYCC, little two-minute thing. How many of you heard that this week? Oh, a few of you. That's good. And you still came back. God's good. Uh, but one of the messages was on grace. One of the little mini devotionals. And I said, when you understand grace, when you fail or when you sin, you go to God. When you don't have a good foundation in grace, when you sin and when you fail, you go away from God. Some people who don't have that understanding, when they, they're, they're, they're messing up, they're not really serving God how they, how they think they should, and you don't see them for weeks and months. And then they come back and they say, oh, yeah, I was failing God, and I just, you know, I'm like, the more you fail God, the more you need to be around the things of the Lord, because he deals with this on the basis of, of grace. So he begins in verse 11 by saying, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The word appeared there in verse 11 is the word epiphany. Sometimes we say, I had an epiphany, you know, like this revelation or this, this knowledge just appeared in my heart and in my mind. And he's saying, by sending Jesus and by providing the plan of salvation, that God has sent the grace of God as a gift to all men, not just some men, not just to the elect. He says all men in verse 11 there. That can't be missed. And so we think about the grace of God saving us. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's a famous passage, verses 8 through 10, that, that we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man can boast. So grace is getting something that you don't deserve that's good. And the word grace is another word for gift in in. Uh, in the New Testament. So when you're studying out the spiritual gifts and all of that, it's the, it's the word grace in the Greek. It's the same word, charis. And so he says, I want you to understand, Timothy, that these things that you're telling these groups of people to do and what I'm wanting you to do in your own life, that only happens by God's grace. It began when you were saved. But then it continues in verse 12. He says, teaching us, that is grace, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly righteously and godly in the present age. Some people say that it's dangerous to teach grace in a church because they will hear that as license. And these people will do whatever they want to do. You start preaching grace, they're just going to go and sin even more. And I totally disagree with that. It's been said you're not really preaching grace, by the way, unless you've been accused of preaching uh, license. And, and so I think that's a good thing to shoot for, uh, to preach grace so much that people don't understand and think you're teaching that uh, you're preaching license to sin. But that's not the case. I come from a very legalistic background when I first came to know the Lord. And it wasn't as bad as other people that I've talked to, but it was pretty bad at times. These man-made rules and this whole teaching that I can be made holy in the power of my own strength. And, and it was very harmful. And why grace was so transforming to me, and the reason why on my first sermon I talked so boldly in my preacher voice, you know, that grace teaches us that denying godliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. I didn't quite do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was just everything in me because it was so transforming to me at the time. Because I was learning that God doesn't deal with me on the basis of my works. He doesn't deal with me on the basis of how I fail. or he doesn't, His love doesn't change. His acceptance doesn't change. He's always for me no matter what. What does grace do to the heart of a human life? It melts that heart. It melts our hearts. Grace rains down on us and in the face of our failure causes us to love God more. To go to him. To, to realize that no matter how much I fail, I can have full confidence before God. Because if you can't have full confidence before God, you don't understand grace. That's why in Hebrews he tells us to come boldly into the throne room of... Can't hear you. Grace. Come boldly. What other way could we come? 
if it wasn't by grace. It, it wouldn't be, I'd be crawling and scrape, you know, like, you know, thinking I'm the worst person in this universe and trying to come before the throne. He wants us to have confidence, to come before him boldly because he is a gracious God. And that's really the ultimate understanding of what grace is, is that he loves me based on who he is. He accepts me based on who he is. He deals with me based on who he is and his faithfulness, not mine. So he, no matter what I do in this life, no matter how much I fail, no matter how much I sin, I couldn't get him to stop loving me if I tried. If I spent my whole life trying to get God to hate me, I couldn't do it. For one, he doesn't change. And he, he's the ultimate of all his characteristics. And he is a gracious, loving God. And he's a faithful father. And as I learn that, as I discover that, then I grow in my faith. If you're engaged in a legalistic environment, your growth is stifled. Your focus is on yourself and how well you're doing compared to other people and, and trying to, to, to have that confidence before God based on your performance, knowing that every day you fall short, knowing every day you sin. People that think they go a few days without sinning don't understand how high the standard is. Every thought, every motive, everything that he wanted me to do that I didn't do, every, everything that I do that I don't do in love, it's all sin. And James says, if I sin in one point of the law, I sin in the whole law. All 613 commandments in the law of Moses, I fall short. So every day I sin, and God knows that. So he's given us what's been called the Christian bar of soap in, in 1 John 1.9. That we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If he didn't know we would sin and fall short, why would he put that verse in the Bible? And say we have an advocate there, Jesus Christ, who goes before us and, and intercedes for us. So that sets us free. And so grace teaches us to say no, not legalism. Grace teaches us to live a godly life that we can please him. Grace teaches us. It's a, it's a tutor. That's literally what the word means. It's a tutor. It's an instructor. He teaches us to come to salvation. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness when we're already saved in the process of becoming holier and holier. And then, look, he says in verse 13, he teaches us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace teaches us to look for him. You know why? Because if we didn't have God's grace put to our lives and applied to our lives, who would want Jesus to come back? You ever heard people, I don't want him to come back. I don't want him to catch me in the middle of whatever I'm doing. That's right, you don't. But when you have the grace of God applied to your life, you want him to come back. Because you know he's for you and you know that, you know that he loves you. You know you have complete confidence before God that he accepts you because of your standing in, in Christ. I love what Pastor Chuck says about the grace of God, and I highly recommend our book there, Why Grace Changes Everything. If you haven't read that, man, I highly recommend reading that book. But one of the things he says that I love is this. He says, I expect God to bless me. Now, if a person from a legalistic background or doesn't understand grace freaks out when someone says that. What? How can you expect God to bless you? Because they're still thinking it's based on you. It's not based on us. It's based on him. And he's a blessing God. Just like our beloved Dave Miller says, because he can't help himself. Because he is who he is. He can't help himself. He loves you. He loves you with all your, your imperfections. He loves you on your good days, your bad days, your struggling days. He loves you the same. And, and that confidence he wants us to have. And I've been in a church environment long, many years ago, where they were just knocking that helmet of salvation off people all the time, making them feel insecure based on their performance. And they, of course, they get lots of people up in front at the altar praying and calling out and praying through and all these things. But they weren't growing in their faith because they didn't have that confidence from which to grow. So it's a beautiful thing to see. But as we look to Jesus to come back for us, it's something that he does in our hearts by his grace. And he adds in verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every, notice the word every, every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Wow. That's why he saved us. To redeem us, to purchase out of the slave market of sin and to make us into new people so that we can be free from every, not some, every lawless deed and to purify 
him for himself. For himself. Did you see that? Who is he, who is he purifying us for? Our own benefit supremely? No, for himself. We're his. We're his possession. And he wants us to be practically holy, just like we are positionally holy before him. And then he says, to, why? So that we could be zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? Am I zealous for good works? It's a searching thing. We should, what are we zealous for? We're zealous for a lot of things in this life. He calls us to be zealous for good works, to treat others well, to be an extension of him in this world, to serve God's people. He says that should be what we're zealous for. Very important. And he ends with 15. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And he says, no, let no one despise you like he kind of like he said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. But this is a general not, you know, non-despising. And it's, it's basically a person that doesn't recognize that the leader or the leaders has, have been placed in part to be able to encourage you to obey God's word. And to blow them off and to say, ah, I don't want to listen to you, is working against what God wants to accomplish in our lives. And the leader, like anybody else, can cave under the pressure of man, the approval of man. I care about what you think of me. <laughs> it's hard to tell you the things that you need to hear. It's hard for me to hear the things for myself that I need to hear. It's hard, but we all need to be willing to receive whatever God wants to say to us through the people he's placed in our lives. So he says to uh, Titus, be bold, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. God's given him authority to rebuke. Don't despise, no matter where God sends you in this world in the, within the body of Christ, don't despise the authority that God's given leaders to lead you in a biblical uh, Christian walk. Very important for us to see that. They pay a high price for doing that. God's called us to holiness. He's called us to live a different kind of life. That life doesn't happen just by happenstance. It happens by God's grace working in our lives. He wants to teach us, further teach us, to live the life that he's called to live, all us to live by his grace. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For all eternity, we're going to be discovering the riches of his grace. And we're going to look at him and we're going to, when he gives us those crowns, we're going to throw them at his feet, knowing that he is worthy. We're not worthy. And worship him with even that which he gives us then. So it's important that we do that with our lives now. Let's pray together. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the preeminence of it and how it washes over our lives and how it cleanses us. Make us into holy people. We want to grow in holiness, Lord. I pray for every one of the youth that's here. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them about their lives, about where their lives are going, about who they're impressed with, about the direction, Lord, that you want to lead them. And I pray that you'd encourage them, that we're for them, that we love them, and that they can live very significant, influential lives for you as they yield their lives, Lord. And I pray for the rest of us here, Lord, that you would show us areas in our life that we need to change, that allow you to work in our lives so that we can live a different kind of life. Make us a holy people, Lord, for your glory. You said, be holy for I am holy. We want our lives to represent you. We thank you that you want our lives to be different. We thank you that you make our lives different because without you, we can do nothing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.